Good morning. It's resurrection season, and I was asked to say a few things today about two topics, the resurrection of Jesus, and then to make some application to the question of suffering. Very important topics, because we have to know as, a, as Christians that the resurrection of Jesus is true, but beyond that, we want it to make a difference, both in our lives and in the future. In fact, I'm going to step around here. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is related to over 300 texts in the New Testament. It's tied in with almost every area of theology and almost every area of practice. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is vain, because it truly is the foundation. Years ago, I had a student, uh, many years ago, and I was teaching church history at that time, and the student said, you know how history exams look with a lot of blanks, and uh, this student said, whenever I take one of your exams, and I don't know what word goes in the blank, I put the word resurrection, and I know I will get at least half credit. The reason he said he would get half credit is because that's generally what he got on my exams. And secondly, secondly, he was a lot of fun, but he wasn't a great student. Um, but secondly, he knows that the resurrection is related at least a bit to every topic in the New Testament. And it really is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, first three verses, Paul says, When I came to you, Corinthians, he said, I preached the gospel to you. And he said, it's very simple. If you've trusted Christ, you're saved. And if not, your belief, or lack of it, is in vain. Your belief is in vain. And then in verse 3, he gives one of the clearest definitions of the gospel. He said, I gave you what I was given. He said, I delivered unto you that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And then he appeared. And then Paul gives a list of appearances with three individuals and three groups. Six appearances. And he, he says, last of all, he appeared to me. Now, you remember that was a couple years after the cross. So he said that was after the time sequence. That was after the 40 days. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is mark off a timeline up here, which hopefully will help you to remember some of the best data on behalf of the resurrection. In fact, a recent writer with University, Cambridge University Press, a recent writer, non-evangelical, said, the evidence for the resurrection is so good that we could introduce it into a court of law and it would win the verdict because of the data we have. A writer, as I said, published by Cambridge University Press. I don't think he would make a comment like that in a vacuum. Now, now here's what's going on. When you do ancient history, what do you need? You need a lot of criteria to know you have an historical event. How would you know an historical event if you met one? What would it look like? Well two of the most important things we would like, and we almost never have in the ancient world, are early 
eyewitnesses. Early eyewitnesses. For example, you know that Alexander the Great, for all his exploits and everything we know about him, the best-known biography of Alexander was not written for 400 years after he lived. What can happen to a story in 400 years? Two of the best-known Roman historians, Tacitus and Suetonius, they write of Julius Caesar. Well, they're a lot closer to the events, but they write, about, they write more than 150 years after Caesar. Now, 150 is better than 400, but a lot of things can happen in 150 years. So now I'm going to start my timeline, and I'm going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. You know what? I'm going to go down to this end. The other day I was starting my timeline like this, and someone said, you've got to do it from the audience's viewpoint. So, all right. This is the death of Jesus. It's usually placed at 30 or 33 AD, but whatever it is, we're doing a plus or minus from this point. So the plus or minus stays the same. I'll just call it 30 AD for uh, convenience. This is the death of Jesus. Down there is 2008. Back there is creation. So this is a timeline of the, the world. Now, if you're going to talk Alexander, as I said, Alexander dies more than 300 years before Jesus, and yet the first biography is going to be about 100 AD, way down here. So if you ask somebody, how do we know about the historical Jesus? Most Christians do something like this. Well, let me tell you about the book of Mark, which is about 65 or 70 AD, and the Gospels fall between Mark and John at about 95 AD. Those are the common dates. Some people differ with those, but those are the common dates. And usually the argument goes like this. Look, even John is only plus 65 after the cross. That's excellent. And Mark is only plus 40. But today I'd like to introduce a different argument that says this. Why don't we use the Apostle Paul, and in particular, this material from 1 Corinthians 15? Now this is a whole long argument. We have a grad uh, course, a graduate course, three hours just on the resurrection. And it takes a long time to unpack this, but this is the short version. Paul wrote this book, 1 Corinthians, about 55 AD. It doesn't make any difference if you're conservative or liberal, the date's the same. 55 AD. First two verses, I just mentioned them. Paul said, this is the gospel I preached when I came to you. When did he come there? He came about 52. 51 to 52, maybe as early as 50. This is the gospel that he gave them just, what, plus 20, plus 21. If Jesus' death is 33, this is less than 20 years later. Now, if I were just to stop there and say, all right, let's think about application because our job's done, you might get the point. Because Alexander plus 400, Julius Caesar plus 150, Jesus' death and resurrection is reported by Paul at about plus 20, and maybe less. But here's the magic words in verse 3. We just read right over them unless we're looking for history. Paul says, verse 3, 
I gave you what I was given, or I delivered unto you that which I also received. By the way, this is Greek, right? This is Greek. But the Aramaic equivalent of this, the language in which Jesus taught, the Aramaic equivalent are technical terms for passing on tradition. And guess what? Josephus tells us that the Pharisees passed on tradition in just this way. Bingo. Paul was a Pharisee. Philippians chapter 3. In other words, Paul is resorting to his rabbinic training, and he says, I gave you what I was given. Now, this is fascinating. Paul, you're a good enough source yourself. You're an eyewitness. Why are you worrying about getting this material from somebody else? Well, if you have your Bibles, I'll turn just briefly, or have you turn to Galatians chapter 1, because most critics, most critical scholars agree that Paul received this material. He said, I gave you, here's the giving, I wrote it, I preached it to you, I gave you what I received. And most critics, conservatives and liberals alike, believe that Paul received this material in 35 A.D., you say, how in the world do you get a date like that? Take a look at Galatians chapter 1. Paul's talking about the gospel. By the way, the theme of the entire book of Galatians is the gospel. What's the pure gospel? And not preaching too little or too much. And Paul said, here's the gospel. I was preaching against it. I was killing people. God saved me from that. Galatians 1.16. And then he says, now, he said, when I became a Christian, I didn't go running up to Jerusalem right away to see those people who were apostles before me. I didn't need to. I got the message from Jesus himself. When did he get the message from Jesus? Here's the cross. New Testament scholars put the conversion of Paul at somewhere between plus one and plus three after the cross. Let's say plus two. Let's take an average. Plus two. Paul says, I didn't need to go running up to Jerusalem to see them because Jesus gave me this message. But, verse 18, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to talk to those who were apostles before me. You can do the math. Two plus three, whatever year this is, this is about five years later. Paul goes to Jerusalem and he said, I met with the apostle Peter and with another apostle, not one of the 12, but someone who later is recognized as an apostle, James, the brother of Jesus. That's an interesting meeting because all three of these men had issues, right? Peter denied his Lord. According to Mark and the Gospel of John, critics believe this, James was not a believer until he met the risen Jesus. Paul was a skeptic and a persecutor until he met the risen Jesus. All three of these men had issues. And they're together, plus five, talking about the gospel. Paul says right after that, he says, I assure you that I'm not lying. And no critic, no critic disputes Galatians or 1 Corinthians as Pauline works. So Paul gets this material, a mere plus five. Now watch in Galatians 2. There's no chapter divisions in the original. 
They're there for, to do right what we're doing now, so I can give you a verse and you can find it. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, 14 years later, I went back up to Jerusalem. And Galatians 2, 2 is as incredible a verse as there is in the New Testament, I think. Galatians 2, 2, I like the King James here. I set before them the gospel that I was preaching to see if I was running or had run in vain. And you go, Paul, you waited 14 years to see if you were preaching the right gospel? And I think Paul would say, you're not listening. I told you I got it from Jesus at about plus two. I went up and saw the other disciples at plus five. This is at least the third time I've gone to Jerusalem. And depending on what you do with Acts chapter 15, that is either, sorry, third time he checked it out, second trip to Jerusalem. Depending on what you do with Acts chapter 15, that could be a third trip to Jerusalem, all for the purpose of making sure of the gospel. Folks, I say this lovingly, but today we would call Paul's personality obsessive-compulsive. Now, I didn't say obsessive-compulsive disorder, but I mean obsessive-compulsive personality. One of our psychologists here who teaches in the Ph.D. program said, if you're going to graduate school, you probably have some obsessive-compulsive tendencies because something makes you stick to it and get through the battle. Well, this is Paul's third time, if we separate Acts 15 from Galatians 2, to check out the gospel. He said, I set before them the gospel I was preaching to see if I was preaching the right thing. And look at Galatians 2.6. They added nothing to me. And who's there in Galatians 2? Peter's there again. James is there again. Paul is there again. And now John is there. Folks, these are the four most influential Christians in the early church, bar none. Peter, James the brother of Jesus, John the son of Zebedee, and Paul are all here together. They hear the gospel that Paul is insisting on them hearing again to make sure we're all on the same page. Verse 6, they added nothing to me. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 11, we're preaching the same thing. I don't care where you get the story of the resurrection appearances, Paul says. Get it from them, get it from me, we're preaching the same message. Now, folks, historically, this argument comes very close to the data. But Paul's first trip was just five years after the event. But watch this. This is when Paul was told about the appearances to the others. I think he knew that, but this is when he heard the details. At just plus five. But watch. If he got this from Peter and James, they had it before he had it. Obviously. And the form they gave it to him, this would take a long explanation, but in the Greek it's stylized. New Testament scholars are unanimous that this is an early Christian proclamation that has been formalized into a formal statement that they memorized. Okay, Paul got it. They had it before Paul. But that's the formal statement. What about the events on which the statement is based? You see what I mean? We're right back to the beginning. You say, well, this sounds pretty conservative. We're, we're right back to 30 AD, yes. Well, surely you're talking about you're talking about conservatives only, right? No. This is granted by virtually every critical scholar writing today. Garrett Ludeman, an atheistic New Testament scholar. Did you know there were some folks like that? An atheist New Testament scholar. 
he says this material goes back no later than 33 AD. The Jesus Seminar says that it predates Paul's conversion. And the latest reports from people like Richard Bauckham, I was just with him in Cambridge a few days ago, as influential a scholar as there is in, in New Testament studies today, Richard Bauckham, James D.G. Dunn, Larry Hurtado of Edinburgh University, they all say this material, the preaching material, not the events itself, the preaching material goes back to 30 A.D. Folks, you don't have to wait for 150 years to hear about Julius Caesar. You don't have to wait 400 years to hear about Alexander the Great. You get this from the four major eyewitnesses, and it dates to the year in question. Now, we could talk more about the data, but this is why most scholars today, this might surprise you, most scholars today who study the resurrection, whether liberal, conservative, or moderate, put them all together, the majority of published scholars today accept the resurrection of Jesus. I don't say they're Christians. That's between them and the Lord. I don't know their hearts. But the majority of them affirm the resurrection in some sense. We're in a new day and age today. Better than when I went to graduate school. It's, it's moved more conservatively since then even. And we have a good foundation for the resurrection. But this is 2008. And you might wonder, what does this say to us today? For example, I told you I was asked to say a few words about suffering. In 1995, 13 years ago, we had to go up to the University of Virginia with my wife. She had been sick for a while, and medical doctors locally, about a half dozen of them, couldn't figure out what was going on, and we went up there. And to make a real long story short, two days after Easter, 1995, my wife was diagnosed with stomach cancer. We got her home from the hospital the first week in May, 1995, and she passed away on August 9th, 1995. My children were at home. She was a stay-at-home mom, and I just never appreciated how many things she accomplished. And all of a sudden, here's these children who need breakfast and lunch, and you know what? They want to eat again at dinner, and their clothes have to be clean, and they've got homework to do, and uh, oh yeah, I'm teaching courses too, at least for a few weeks there until summer started. And she came home with a tube in her stomach, and we had to feed her three times a day through this tube. We had to give her medicine four times a day through this tube, and I had to take the tube out every morning and clean it to get the medicine and everything out. I take my phone off the hook for half a day every day until my children came home from school. And I was just exhausted. And, and I would have a discussions with the Lord, make-believe discussions where I pictured what the Lord would say to me. And she would sleep for 15, 18 hours a day. And I put a child monitor up there, and it was starting to get warm. And I went out and sat on the front porch, and I had discussions with the Lord. And I said, Lord, why is she dying? She's 43 years old. Why is she dying? And I pictured this kind of discussion with the Lord. I pictured him saying to me, Gary, I know what you're talking about. I watched my son die. And let me just say as a footnote, if anything, the film The Passion might underdo, not overdo, 
what happens to crucifixion victims. In fact, we have an ancient source that say, says the whipping alone would be so severe that organs would sometimes fall out. I just tell you that. It's nasty, but I'm telling you to give some thought this season to what Jesus has done for us. And I pictured the Lord saying to me, I watched my son die. I said, well, Lord, I appreciate that, but it's 1995, and I, I just, Gary, did you hear what I said? I said, I watched my son die. Lord, I believe that with all my heart, but Lord, I just, I just need something for my family. Gary, let me ask you a question. Did I take my son off the cross? No, Lord, you didn't. I didn't take, you didn't take your son off the cross. Well, Gary, I've got a question for you. Do you expect better than my son received? I thought, oh, I don't like where this is going. Do you expect better than my son received? No, Lord, I don't. Gary, I never promised to take people from their suffering. Sometimes I do that, but I never promised that I always do that. I said I would be with you through the suffering. And I held my son's hand. He said, my God, my God, into your hand I commend my spirit. I held his hand, metaphorically, but I held his hand while he was on the cross. Do you expect better? Oh, Lord, that's not what I wanted to hear. But Gary, something else happened. On Sunday morning, I raised him from the dead. He said, I didn't take him from the cross, but I gave him the answer that for all eternity he would never suffer again. And for all eternity, you folks know that in the New Testament, the doctrine that's related to the resurrection of Jesus more than any other doctrine is the resurrection of believers. Almost 20 times we are told that we will be raised from the dead like Jesus. And so Jesus' answer to me, first on suffering, unless I expect better than Jesus received, sometimes we're all called to go through suffering. That's a question you'll have to answer. But God didn't take a son from the cross, and he often won't take us from our crosses. But he does guide us through them. And the other side is resurrection. The other side of the cross is resurrection. So the Lord went on in my make-believe conversation. He said to me, you know, I did answer his prayer. I answered his prayer on Sunday morning. He had to go through Friday. But I answered his prayer on Sunday morning. You know, the best answer in the universe is, number one, that God knows what we're going through. For some reason that we'll learn later, he thinks we need to go through it to develop our character, to develop other characters, whatever but that we come through it. Those who are faithful to Christ. And be careful during those times, because when you're suffering, that's when you most feel like throwing the towel in. That's when you most feel like saying, it's over, I'm done with it. God doesn't care about me, I don't care about him. And those are hard words, but sometimes we've all been there. But remind yourself, ask yourself, how did Jesus feel on the cross? Did God take him down? He didn't. 
And he'll be with us through our suffering. In the end, because of the resurrection, what the resurrection shows that there is, is that there is eternity. Folks, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, that wonderful chapter that we've been talking about, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says several things depend on the resurrection. And one of them, he says, is that death has been defeated. And if you are in Christ, you will live forever. Remember, Jesus told Mary and Martha that in John 11. He said, if you live and believe in me, you'll never die because you'll be passed from death unto life. Both John 5, 24, and also John 11 to the two ladies after they lost their brother, Jesus' friend, whom he loved. And Paul taunts death. Read the commentaries. Paul is quoting the book of Isaiah, and he's not talking like this. I don't have any trouble with poetry. But he's not doing this. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? Read the commentaries. He's taunting death. And he's taunting death on behalf of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, I'm overdoing it a little bit, but what Paul's doing is this. Death, you got something on me? You got nothing. You've got nothing. Yes, you could hurt me. You know where I live. You know my address. You can hurt me. But you can't take anything away from me that I have. Because of Jesus Christ, I have eternal life. You've got nothing. You've got nothing. Death died when Jesus died. Unfortunately, it's all not been shaken down yet. You can read about that in Scripture. But God promises to hold our hand through suffering. And Satan has been defeated. If the resurrection is true, Satan has been defeated, and his softest spot is death because Jesus won it for us. So Paul's saying, you've got nothing on me. You've got nothing on me. We're in an auditorium here, right? He could say, look at the score. You're down. You're going down. You can hurt me. But I know Jesus Christ. Jesus said, because I live, ye shall live also. Thank you, Dr. Habermas. Teachers like Dr.